This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today we're talking about color. Our lives are filled with it. Colors mark our psychological and social existence. But despite all this, we don't know a whole lot about color. I'm joined by David Caston, an English professor at Yale University who has written widely on literature and the arts and is an expert on Shakespeare. Together with artist Stephen Farthing, he has written On Color. David, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So to start, how do we see color? In other words, why don't we all sort of see it the same way? Well, it's an excellent question. That's a hard one to begin with. We don't see it the same way, partly because neurobiologically each of us is somewhat distinct, though we see it more the same way than we sometimes do do admit. But we see color partly with our eyes, partly with our brains, partly with a culture that has enveloped us from the beginning. So with color, there's always something more than meets the eye. I think back, and it's in the book, about the the infamous dress and the sort of (laughs) (laughs) families that were torn apart by who saw it as white and gold and who saw it as blue and black. And that's an interesting example of where what one would think would simply be obvious, and you did have this short run happily, two or three weeks (laughs) of, of some internet meme where people are arguing what was the actual color of the dress. And in one way, some of the problems, of course, no one was actually looking at the dress. They were looking at a photograph of the dress, usually <laughs> on a computer. So other color production methods are affecting what you see. But it really did prove the point that we we make color rather than see color. I think one of the ways I talk about it in the book is I say, you know, color happens rather than it exists. And that the controversy of the dress was an interesting example of how the brain is making completely unconscious corrections for lighting conditions, and it's making the colors that we think we see. Yeah, we talk a lot about with the human brain, it's sort of this pattern recognition and how it fills in for us. So we don't always see things that are there the way they are, which is why optical illusions and things like that work. And I imagine it's the same for color, we imagine something is going to be orange, so we see it in the orange that we yeah, expect it. Color is an optical illusion <laughs> in, some, in, in some way. And we, the easiest way to think about color is that it's something there, that it's out in the world and it belongs to the objects that we're looking at. And that, that isn't exactly what, what color is. You know, we've misrecognized it from the beginning and <laughs> usually the effects of the misrecognition or the consequences are pretty in significant. But there, we are, we're always making color in, in our head. I mean, that we, you know, the technical scientific explanation for color, which is in various ways partial, but, you know, we have a kind of commonly agreed upon structure derived from, from Newton, which is, you know, light reflects off an object and some of the rays of light are reflected out, which our eyes receive, and some are just absorbed by the object. 
there are all sorts of things that are odd about that one. It doesn't explain a lot of color experiences, but also it means that it's the things that don't stay in the object that we see as the object's <laughs> color. Right. You know, it's reflecting the yellow. It's absorbing the others. So we say it's yellow, which itself <laughs> is odd. But even that, there's nothing in the sort of scientific explanation of color that's actually colored. I mean, the rays aren't aren't colored. Uh, what's happening in the brain, the neurobiological activity, none of that is colored. And it, it's only at some other point where something you might call consciousness sort of reinterprets the signals that have been received and recoded, and then that we see color. So, you know, you probably, most of us see more or less the same colors through that process or make more or less the same colors in that process, though we may not call them the same things, um, though sometimes not. I mean, there are deficiencies or abnormalities, on the other hand, just differences that might let eyes process this differently, brains process this differently. Um, but color is, it is an illusion, <laughs> uh, but a wonderful one. And um, where do humans rank as, uh, in, as far as the animal kingdom goes with our ability to see color? Well, we see many colors, uh, though there are creatures on the earth that see m many more and many that see them differently. You mentioned pigeons in the book, I believe. <laughs> That's because I grew up in New York. <laughs> um, yeah, well, pi pigeons see colors differently than humans do. Um, they have – we tend to see color at least the first stage of the human engagement with the physics that are directing electromagnetic rays into our eyes. We, we have three sets of, of cones that sort of overlap color spaces and allow us to produce the full range of colors that we can see. Uh, pigeons have four and some seem to have five sets of cones. So – they have a more robust color experience and a different color experience than we have mainly at the orange and red end of the color spectrum that, that we see. And one of the things I play with in the book, and the book really isn't very scientific. It's mostly playful. Me and <laughs> Stephen Farthing, a painter, as you said, you know, thinking about what are the oddities of color experience. But one of the things I wondered about in the book was, well, if pigeons have a more robust color experience than we do, how come we get to name the colors? <laughs> uh, and, of course, the answer is we have words. They don't. Um, but that's become a sort of interesting debate among philosophers, and there are a number of philosophers who are starting to think that we should have species-specific names for colors because our orange isn't exactly what a, a pigeon would see uh, that, that just further down the, the wavelengths uh, towards the, the infrared scale. But, of course, pigeons don't have words, so we, we get to name the colors. And so we're talking about this, these, these three cones, trichromatic, uh, um, and that leads us to sort of the idea of primary colors. Uh, we all start learning primary colors pretty early. Um, where do we start to move away from primary colors? How does that come about um, historically? When do people start messing with <laughs> color? Well, I think the whole notion of primary color was always something of a misnomer. I mean, that what uh, we all learned somewhere in first grade, we got paints and we discovered that there were certain colors we could 
mix from combining colors, and there are other colors that just seem to be themselves. And so we learned somewhere along the line that we could make uh, green from blue and yellow. Um, But if you think of Newton's notion of color as dividing up the white light, uh, usually with a prism as he first experimented it, and then you have that color spectrum that ranges from you know, red to violet, that doesn't produce a notion of the, you know, they're all primary in that sense. Um, and on a computer screen, colors are mixed in totally different ways um, in, in which in one of the versions, green is a primary color as it's not in the first grade classroom. So it's not really a very useful term in some way for people who are thinking hard about about color. Though the thing that interested me so much when I was working on this book was the discovery that different disciplines uh, just think about color differently in terms of what the needs are of the discipline. For a chemist, color is one thing. For a physicist, color is uh, another thing. For uh, an artist like Stephen Farthing, it's a totally different thing. And you know, I would describe you and me. We're mostly color tourists, <laughs> one, wandering around this extraordinary experience. And how did color start to get uh, associated with emotions? You know, I'm feeling blue, or you're seeing red. These ideas that color and emotions are tied together, and. I assume there's some variance culturally with who maybe blue isn't depressing in some cultures. Well, I think one of the things that's true uh, is that colors get associated with lots of things. I mean, they're they're recognizable and they're wonderfully mobile. You know, you can sort of attach them to things. When color and emotion actually started is almost impossible to say, but you can find it quite early and it's in these color metaphors, as you say. Uh, I'm tickled pink. Uh, People are, Shakespeare talks about somebody being green with envy. Um, Though in Hungarian, I have some Hungarian friends who told me rather quickly that in Hungary, uh, people are yellow with envy and they're green with anger. But in English, Mm -hmm. we usually red with anger or our face turns purple with anger. So there's some association reasonably early, but it it shifts from culture to culture. it seems to have something to do with registering physiological conditions. I assume blue with sadness has something to do with a condition doctors call cyanosis, uh, the condition we sometimes know as blue babies when a baby is born and is having trouble oxygenating the blood. And the link then to to sadness is obvious enough. Uh, some extremities sometimes turn blue at the moment of death, lips, fingers. And so, you know, something physical and experiential about it. And I suspect most of these things have some experiential root. But then they move into the world of metaphor, of, of cultural experience, and you sort of lose the fact of their their origin in in something that was that was seen, experienced, recognized, but blue, for instance, and I think this is true of every color, is every color has a set of associations that are unstable and often contradictory. So blue is a color of sadness, and you can see it say in Picasso's blue period paintings. But blue is also a color of transcendence, and uh, in the Bible. 
the description of the floor of heaven is more blue than a sapphire, and other religions have the blue mosque in Istanbul, uh, blue gods uh, in in Hindu religions. So it works both ways, a, a, a color of sort of human physiological failure, but also some transcendent experience. And, and, but all colors, it seems to me, you can make some sort of fully contradictory argument about what they mean. They mean what we make them mean and what we need them to mean <laughs> and what we want them to mean. And speaking of blue, um, how did uh, blue – come to be associated with boys and pink with girls? Is this is there a cultural reason for this, or is it just a, son, a kind of a funny thing that happened? Well, it, it turns out not to have been very specific, um, and it, it's really only about in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s that it really stabilizes in the way we know it, and it was, in fact, developed largely as a department store marketing employee. Babies, infants were dressed in mostly in lighter colors, white, pink, blue. There was no gender specification for a long time. There's an argument that people have made that the uh, famous painting by Gainsborough of the blue boy is the beginning of the location of blue with boys, though Gainsborough also painted a painting. There's a, a boy dressed in pink. <laughs> uh, so that argument doesn't work very well. And I, I think it really was sort of largely in about the 1940s where it started to s settle both in England and in the U.S. And then it spread. But uh, actually, there was one long period where it actually had reversed itself in the 16th and 17th century. It was more likely that girls would be dressed in blue and boys in a light in a light red. But now there's no going back from that one, I suspect. <laughs> and why do we find uh, certain color combinations to be pleasing? Why do we find certain color combinations to be jarring? People usually say it is something something to do with a kind of excitement of the cones in the eyes, and some of that I I I excitement is pleasing and some irritating. And there's been an awful lot of work on the r relationship of colors, and in lots of ways, color color is always relational. I mean, I think that was one of the joys of thinking about this book with Stephen was that you know it, the book itself was some form of collaboration but color is a is a collaboration but we experience color almost never uh, in in isolation it's in relation to other colors and over time we have discovered and some of it is simply a, a kind of uh, familiarity with with colors but uh, colors change in relation to other colors sometimes interestingly sometimes pleasingly some times jarringly. I mean, and though I suspect every person's tolerance for the disjunctions is, is slightly different. I, and, but we do know that we see colors differently in relation to the colors that surround them. And there, there's an old Roddy Dangerfield joke that I thought of as I was writing the book, remembered and uh, Ronnie Dangerfield said, uh, I went to the dentist and told him that my teeth were yellow. And he said, wear a brown tie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it, the joke does get at the fact that we know that somehow the relationship of one color to another changes the experience of it. 
Um, so obviously, you're you have a background in English literature, Shakespeare. Um, what are some of your favorite uh, uses of color in literature? Well, they're they're scattered through the book, and I I, I mean I found in many ways Shakespeare was actually less interesting about <laughs> color than many other authors um, for me. And that's not how I came to write the book. I, I have to say, I, I was, I, I've thought about this a lot. Why did I want to write this book? And I, I loved writing the book. I, in some ways, it was uh, partly just a very new experience. I've been writing about Shakespeare for decades. But I've always been very interested in color. Some of it was, I think, I was a little boy in Arizona. I... My memories are indistinct for the most part. I left when I was about six. But I so remember early mornings where my parents would take me to a place called Sabino Canyon. I don't even know if it exists anymore. It could be a parking lot for all I know. Um, But the kind of wonderful morning colors of uh, pinks and reds and purples as the sun came up into the canyon. And I've always been very attuned to it. I like color. I like having pictures on my walls that are, for me, interesting and where colors, they speak. And the the story I've told almost nobody is I went to college thinking I wanted to paint. Um, And actually, we spent one year after college for about eight months painting. And uh, that experience confirmed the truth of the story I'll tell you now is I I took a painting course my freshman year from a wonderful painter, a painter named Esteban Vicente, who is in most of the major museums uh, on the league table of painters. He'd be sort of just below the great abstract expressionist, but really quite a wonderful painter and a wonderful teacher. And I was thrilled when I got to college. Uh, My parents were Depression kids, hadn't gone to college, and I looked through this college catalog, and like the Yale catalog, there were hundreds and hundreds of courses that seemed interesting. There was a course called Introduction to Painting. So I signed up for it and thought I would paint, and about six weeks into the course, uh, Esteban Vicente said, could we get a coffee after class? And I said, sure. And I, I thought, with luck, he's going to tell me I should drop out of school now and just move to Paris and paint for the rest of my life. And what he said was, you know, I love having you in this class, but you sh- shouldn't think about being a painter. Um, and I tried not to cry. Uh, and I said, why? And he said, well, they'll – and he paused, and it was really kind of the most graceful put-down I've ever heard. He said, there will always be more beautiful paintings in your head than you will ever get onto a, camp- a canvas. And he was right. Um, so I became an academic and spent my life mostly thinking about Shakespeare and came back to color. So this is, this is full circle. Full circle <laughs> for me. But color is a topic where if you ask anybody about it, they have a story to tell you. This, and it's almost always something you don't know. I, mean, there were, I have a very good friend, a wonderful, maybe the smartest young Shakespearean in the country right now, but who grew up in Hungary we were talking about the book, and he said, oh, there are two words for red in Hungarian. It's, one is uh, pirosh and the other is virish. 
And he said they don't actually mark different shades of red. I mean, that in all most languages have words, you know, we have a lot of words that are some kind of red, scarlet and burgundy and, you know, we just have chestnut. We have so many fire engine red. But he said that's not exactly what they do in Hungarian. Um, there's, and his word was, he's an academic, he said they're, they're affective, not chromatic. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, one's sort of a happy red and one is more a complicated red. So a child's Easter egg will always be the happy red, whether it's sort of pink or whether it's burgundy. And a glass of wine is always the happy red. But blood, which could be exactly the color as that dark red wine is always the more complicated red. And I thought that's interesting, that language. And then I started to talk to more linguists and sociologists, anthropologists, and found that there are lots of languages that have sort of affective structures of red or experiential structures of a, of a, of a color to name those colors. And it's really relatively recently, it's really in the 19th century and mostly in the modernized countries where we have an idea of color that's abstracted from experience, you know, where you think about a color as stable and abstract. And it really is a function in part of industrialization and modernization. And there are cultures that would never think about color that way. So one of the great joys was just the conversations that the book demanded but provoked. <laughs> and did you find as you're uh, writing this book, can you tell something about somebody based on what they say their favorite color is or uh, – what they think their favorite color is? I can't, but I'm always <laughs> interested. Um, now, nothing for, for, for me was predictive about this. I have gotten a couple of phone calls and emails from people since the book came out where people asked me, was I interested in consulting in some way for you know, some product? And <laughs> I have no interest in doing that, and then I'd be terrible at it. Um, I, I, I think what interests me about the story, I mean, the, the, these are 10 chapters on 10 colors with some idea sort of implausibly or maybe not so implausibly shoehorned under one color or the other. But there is a, an arc to the, the book, which is it starts as you began the interview. It's the first chapter is about how do we see colors and what is it that we're seeing but then from then on, it's sort of what do we do with colors? How do we name them? How do we divide up the spectrum? What counts as a color in one culture is not necessarily the same thing as what counts as that color in another. And then what do we do with – once we have color as a concept, what do we do with it? We color code race. We color code emotions. We color code politics. Um, how does that work? So, you know, my quick arc for this book was we make color and color makes us. And speaking of race, um, you talk about black and white in the book as colors. Where, where do these labels for skin color come from? Nobody's black, nobody's white, nobody's yellow, nobody's red. And yet that is what provides, at least in casual speech, so much of our uh, vocabulary of color differentiation and racial distinction, and you know all the things that biologically are consequential for differentiating races, 
color is probably the, the least consequential. And what, what interested me in the way the chapter on that begins was I started to think about when, you know, when was it that Asians first started to get identified as yellow? Because I knew from some of the work I had done working on 16th and, century, and 17th century literature that when Europeans first started to go to Japan and China, one of the things they regularly said about the new populations they came in contact with was in a phrase that's repeated over and over again is, they're white like us. And then yet by the 19th century, there's something just inevitable and unchangeable about Asians being identified as yellow. And it probably starts in the 18th century, that great age of systematization in in the Enlightenment and in, in Europe generally. And Linnaeus, who's one of the great systematizers, uh, he comes up with four forms of human life and he, he color codes them. Uh, and then it's only actually in the 10th edition, I think that's right, the 10th edition of his, his work where he decides that the that Asian type is what he calls, the Latin is luridus, uh, yellow uh, kind of. And then what really does happen is from then on, um, it somehow becomes true. Uh, it's, again, seeing what we think we're, we're going to see, but it's utterly implausible. And then what really happens is in the 19th century, and it's partly the rise of both China and Japan as military powers, and then waves of immigration into the U.S. and some into Europe where suddenly this all seemed charged in a way. And you know, Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany was probably the first, at least the first we know who used the term, uses the term the yellow peril. Uh, and and at, at, at that point, there really is a, a kind of clash of civilization narrative that starts. And uh, the Kaiser had made a, had a painting made that sort of points towards this class of civilization. He sent it to other monarchs in Europe. He sent it to the American president, and he was predicting that this would be the next great war. But of course, the next war was World War I, and it was fought among you know, largely white European countries. So um, do you have a favorite color? What's yours? I don't. I, the, I, I'm wearing blue today, <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps that's the answer. But I, I, I don't. I, I actually like different colors. I, um, I spent most of my academic career, and I think this was a function of after we left Arizona, we found our way to New York. Um, I'm mostly wearing black and gray. And I, <laughs> I, I, I did find that since I started to work on the book, the palette of my dress code has, has, <laughs> has brightened significantly. I uh, my I get this question a lot from my two kids. What's your favorite color, Dad? Because kids are very easy. It seems they can quickly pick their favorite color, although it changes often. Uh, and I never know. I never know how to answer that. It depends on if it's if I like to look at certain colors. I like to wear different certain colors. So <laughs> no, I think that's true. And I, I I think what's wonderful is we sort of have favorite colors. I I think probably your favorite color to dress in might not be the color you want your automobile to be right. or the color of the pictures on your walls or the color of your hair but mine has now turned gray so <laughs> so do you do you still paint even just for fun no 
uh, and I, I think it was the, like so many things in my life. Once I discovered I wasn't very good at them, I I actually stopped. But I I love being with painters and talking with painters, and one of and and photographers also. And one of the thrill of the book, of doing the book, was talking with people and the generosity of of people sharing their work and wanting to continue conversations about color. I think they're very happy to find someone who is interested in what they were doing. All right. Well, the book is On Color. David, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Michael. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.